Amen, church. Good to see you this morning. Thank you, worship team. Uh, it's good to be in God's house, isn't it, church? Um, it is a joy to be here with you. My name is Tyler. I'm the youth and families pastor. And whether you are here in person or uh, you know, uh, you've tuned in online, Facebook, YouTube, we want to say thank you for being here. Thanks for being a part uh, of worship uh, with us this morning. Uh, I've got a couple quick announcements for us. Um, <laughs> just go, just, just walk away. It didn't happen. Drop the mic. Drop the mic. Anyways, wow. Um, hey, it's a good morning. And you know what? Church should be a place where we can laugh and, uh, and have a good time uh, as well as worship the Lord in all that we do, glorifying him. It's about him, right? And, and we, we fail and we mess up here and there and we knock things over. But you know what? It's not about us. It's about him. And, uh, and so that's okay. Um, I got a couple exciting announcements. Um, you've heard them before. I'm going to give them to you again this morning. We've got our kids ministry is in the second service. And so if you have kids here that want to come back for that service, we would encourage you to do that. Uh, our kids ministry, they're doing such an amazing job over there, uh, getting that program back and going and doing a wonderful job. Our youth ministry, grades 6 to 12, meeting on Wednesday nights. And so we want to encourage uh, encourage our students to come back this Wednesday night. Um, as the, the temperature gets a little cooler, uh, we will plan to, to actually meet in here for our main um, sermon. How cool is that, that we have to meet in here to have enough room to, um, to get together? That's, that's a God thing, and that's really cool. And, and, um, uh, but we're making it work. And so grades 6 to 12, we'd love for you to come uh, be a part of that 6.30 on Wednesday night. And then, uh, as you heard last week, our Trick or Treat Ambassador Program is coming, right? Uh, and we need families on, that will, on Halloween, represent our church uh, by shining a light in their communities through a few different ways. Uh, we are giving yard signs to put in yards of families that decide they want to be a part of it, or individuals or households that want to be a part of this. We'll give you a yard sign. We'll give you a hoodie. They look good. All right, they look good. I'm signing up just for that, remember? I'm not. We will bag up candy and, and make sure you have that to pass out good bags of candy when you're a light for the gospel. You know, if it's Christian, it ought to be better. That's what I heard growing up. <laughs> um, and we've designed these cards that you can kind of engage families in your communities, especially adults. You give candy to kids, but these cards we want you to give to adults. And that gives them information and a QR code to, to sign up for a family challenge bundle. Um, so we're giving away the Adventure Challenge book and, uh, and camera. And we're giving away uh, 20 Starbucks gift cards to people who register. And so we want, we want parents to go on to our site, put their information in so that we can give them a, a uh, prize if they win. And so we've got something that we can do. And I don't know about you, if I was handing this walking around the neighborhood, I would sign up for sure. I'm going to. 
Ten, ten times I'm going to sign up. Um, but we have those, and we're excited about this. We need, we're looking for 20 to 25 households that will represent our church and be ambassadors for us. And so we've had people signing up um, this week. I think we have about 10 families that, uh, that are kind of in that list, but we need more. So we're looking for 15 more. We've got one week to sign up. The second thing you can do, and you can sign up by going to the Church Center app, and it's right there. It says ambassadors. You can sign up right there, um, and you can even do that this morning. The second thing is we need more candy. I know some of you have already brought in some really good candy downstairs, and I appreciate that, uh, but we need, uh, next Sunday will be kind of the last Sunday to bring in that candy, and so we would love for you to do that. If you want to bring it to the office throughout the week, you can also do that. Not my office, uh, the office, all right? The, uh, the main offices, okay? Wow. You um, let's continue, you know? Uh, if you've come prepared to give your tithes and offerings this morning, we are so grateful, church, and thankful for your continued faithfulness in giving. There are, there are boxes uh, along the, the wall in the back, right next to the door. As you exit this morning, you can drop something in there. As always, you can give online as well. And so thank you, church, uh, and, and we appreciate your faithfulness in giving. I'm going to hand it over to Pastor Matt to teach God's word this morning. Thank you, Tyler. I'm very excited about our, our trick-or-treat ambassadors program and very excited about the stash of candy that's growing in our offices. We do appreciate that. Uh, thank you for the Reese's peanut butter cups that keep coming in in abundance. We're so blessed by your generosity and... Uh, I'm going to get fat real soon. So it's good to see you guys this morning. Good to hear your voices just gathered together and singing God's praises. Does our heart good to sing the goodness of God, doesn't it? To remind ourselves and to rehearse for ourselves what God has done in our lives, the blessings he's brought. I read this morning in Psalm 103 the different things that God has done in, in providing salvation, in sustaining, in providing, in giving, and and, and lifting the burden of the poor and the oppressed and, and establishing his covenant with Israel. And it's good to remind ourselves of the goodness of God. Because when the bottom falls out, <laughs> and inevitably it will, we need to remind ourselves of the track record of faithfulness that God has shown us over the years. This morning, we're back in uh, Mark's gospel. And our study today takes us to an interesting confrontation at this point, we shouldn't be surprised by the confrontation because Jesus has been confronted a whole lot, nor should we be concerned anymore because we've seen that he's pretty capable of handling his own, right? He's, he's, taken, a, he's taken a couple good shots, and he's uh, weathered the storm fairly well up to this point. I don't know about you. Many of you may remember the old musical Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, and some of you, some of you didn't have a mom who loved musicals, and it shows, you uncultured barbarians. But some of us did and watched lots of Rodgers and Hammerstein videos, uh, VHS tapes back in the day, um, old musicals like my mom loved, and that was clearly your loss. Anyway, our passage today with the religious leaders uses a likely fictitious story about seven brothers and one bride, not seven brides or seven brothers, but seven brothers, only one bride, and they're trying to trap Jesus yet again, and it goes really well for them, as we can probably predict by now. But soon we'll see that the story that Jesus is, um, is confronted with is really just a cover for the real question. And the answer given by Jesus is far different than anything these guys could have 
even imagine. So let's, uh, let's read in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 18 this morning. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the, rec- in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He's not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and all that you plan to teach us. I pray, God, that today our hearts and minds would be yielded and surrendered. We think of those within our congregation who are in need today of of being reminded of your faithfulness and your track record. Pray for those who are sick and struggling. We pray for those who are ill and hospitalized. God, that in your mercy you would give grace. Give the doctors wisdom and give healing. Pray for those who are discouraged. Pray for those who, are, who, are, um, who have been assaulted by the, the rise in mental health distress and depression and anxiety. God, I pray that you would be gracious and kind to them. Lead them to your hope. Remind them of your promises. Pray for our church family that the relationships and unity here would be strong, that our love for one another would preserve us, and God, that in this world of division, we would show a a unified front so that the world might know that we're your disciples because of our love for one another. We submit to the power of the scriptures today, and we ask for your, your wisdom to be on display. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. First thing we see this morning is a question is posed to Jesus, and it's a pretty elaborate question at that. It's not like a simple one last week, like, hey, is it lawful for me to pay taxes or not? This one has a pretty big lead up, right? And it sounds so preposterous that it's surely a hypothetical story that is being used for dramatic purposes. The likelihood of this actually happening is slim to none, right? Verse 18, the Sadducees come to him. Not all of them, that would be funny, but a a delegation of the Sadducees come to Jesus. So the question needs to be asked, who are these Sadducees? They're part of the Jewish leadership, along with the Pharisees. The Sadducees were part of the aristocratic party, made up of the high priestly caste and the family members of the leading members in Jerusalem. So these were socially influential people by virtue of their wealth and their status, They had been known to be notoriously harsh in matters of justice. They were fairly conservative in their theological convictions. A major point of division and disagreement between them and the Pharisees 
was this issue that they did not affirm a resurrection, which is actually mentioned right here. The Sadducees come who say that there is no resurrection. Coincidentally, they also didn't believe that the entire Old Testament was God's word. They only read the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. So that, there is a difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And the, that difference is actually pointed out. So he says that there is, they believe that there is no resurrection. So we should probably stop and pause real quick and ask the question, which, which resurrection is he talking about? He's not talking about Jesus' resurrection. That hadn't happened yet. He's talking about the biblical doctrine of, of the resurrection, the, the general resurrection, which is our doctrinal position that the souls of men who live on after death and that when God brings history to its final close, he will raise the bodies of all human beings from the grave and reunite them to their souls with the righteous being welcomed to eternal life with God, the unrighteous being sent away into eternal torment. Faithful study of the Old Testament would lead somebody to that conclusion. But the Sadducees did not support that doctrine. They did not see within their book, the first five books, enough support to make that claim. So, we're talking about folks who only looked at the first five books, and they weren't considering the historic books. They weren't considering the wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. They weren't even considering the prophets with all the promises that the prophets give us about the renewed and restored kingdom. All of this, this covenant hope that the prophets provide for us, they weren't even thinking about any of that. So the Sadducees, with their focus on the first five books, wrongly dismissed the whole idea of a resurrection, claiming that at the end of the age, something like that just wouldn't exist. So here's the riddle of the day, Jesus. Here's what we give to you today. He says, a man's brother dies, and the man takes the widow as his wife, but she doesn't have any children. And that man also dies, so another takes her. But she bears him no children, and he dies as well. And this happens seven times over. This poor woman outlives seven husbands. Poor thing. At that point, she's probably like, look, I'm done with this. Like, I, we, just, we don't need this. My wife can barely handle the one that God gave her. My goodness, this poor lady. Jesus, at the resurrection, they say, when they rise again, which sounds like a little bit of a, uh, a leading statement. They, they don't believe in the resurrection, remember? They, you, you can imagine that they're, they're offering it a little tongue-in-cheek with a little bit of sarcasm here. A loaded question, Jesus at the resurrection, you know, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. Now that seems a little bit weird to us. Uh, in our day and age, that is not the normal pattern. If you have a brother who's, who, who dies, it is not your job then to marry his widow. And Many of you are very thankful for that, right? Because... Your sisters-in-law are wonderful people, but we'd like to keep them in that relationship, right? What is this about? This is the, the practice of leveret marriage that we see throughout the Old Testament. And it sounds weird to us, but we're also living in 2020 in a Western civilization in a different era. See, in 
in the early days of the Old Testament, God lays this out. This, this practice is actually a provision by God to make sure that the name and the heritage of the deceased brother and the property of the deceased brother would stay within the covenant community, within his family for posterity. Deuteronomy chapter 25, 5 is the, is the, and following is the passage that they're referencing. So the, the idea was that rather than allowing this widow to be taken by somebody else, forced into some kind of unwanted labor, and rather than allowing the family heritage and property to be absorbed by a pagan culture, God provided a way within the covenant community to preserve all of that within the nation of Israel. In fact, if, if you remember your Bible stories and your lessons from Sunday school and even some of the preaching we've done here, the story of Ruth leans on this principle. Ruth is out gleaning in the fields of Boaz and Naomi says, whoa, Boaz, hold on a second. He's part of the line. Maybe, maybe there's no brother, but if there's another family member who's willing to take that responsibility, she leans on that principle. And through that, actually, Ruth is preserved. See, rather than use the story to challenge the law itself, which sounds a little bit odd, they use the story to show that they believe it's absurd. They're using the story not to seek clarity. They're trying to show Jesus how absurd the notion of a resurrection is based on the fact that it would create chaos in heaven. Because when they get there, who gets her? Are they going to fight for her? Is there some kind of raffle? Do they enter some sort of drawing? Who gets to decide whose wife she is? She's technically all of their wives. There, Jesus. See if you can figure that one out. All right. So Jesus responds. And he says, he says in the most tactful way, he says, you know what your problem is? That's a very tactful way. Is this not the reason you are wrong? I feel, like, I feel like I could have saved myself a lot of trouble through the years if I had used Jesus' words instead of, you know what your problem really is? Is this not the reason you are so wrong? I say that to my kids. They'll love that. He says, is this not the reason? He's very clear. No, guys, you're not right. You're thinking about this completely wrong. And the reason is because you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. He just... In a very dismissive form, says, no, you're wrong, and you're wrong because you don't know the Bible, and you've never tasted the power of God. Now, before we get into what Jesus actually says, just pause here, and, and let's consider the stinging rebuke that he just lobbed at the Sadducees. These guys are so puffed up in their own eyes because of what they believed was a mastery of the Scriptures especially their insistence that the first five books were Scripture and Scripture alone. Jesus says they're deceived, that they don't know the Bible. So whatever version of religion you're practicing, guys, 
It's not drawing on the source of God's power, and you've missed the point of the truth of God's word. Yeah, he, he came out swinging. And then he says this, for when they rise, not if, and if you'll notice, he doesn't actually launch into a huge defense of his doctrinal position. <laughs> no, guys, for when they rise, and here's what he says about what happens when they rise. He describes something that's a little different than what you're envisioning. He basically says, heavenly life isn't like what you think it is. He says, there, there won't be marriages after the resurrection. People won't be marrying and given in marriage. They will be like the angels. A couple things here. First is what? There's no marriage? People won't be married or given in marriage? How can that be? Now, here, here's one of those examples where the ideas of the next life might for us be more shaped by cultural um, entertainment <laughs> than what the Bible actually says. Right? Because our, our television, our old school cartoons, our ideas of the afterlife have been shaped by popular culture. And this is a hard truth to hear. How could it be that something so foundational to the human experience, marriage, that something that is so rich in benefits to the participants, how could it be that something so beautiful wouldn't be included by God in heaven? How does that make any sense? The joys of marital union are so many. All jokes aside, the camaraderie and the partnership and the shared experience and the mutual growth and for Christian couples, the stories of God's faithfulness and how he's changing and shaping us, the victories we've seen in our own lives, the answers to prayer together, the raising of children, the joys of intimacy, all of that. How in the world could something so rich and beautiful not be included? It's hard for us to imagine a world where marriage isn't a prominent feature. In fact, for many of us, it seems a bit disappointing, if we're honest. Like, like if I get to heaven and realize that I can't watch my Penn State Nittany Lions play football, I'm going to be upset. That's a little disappointing. If there's no cheesecake, right? What in the world? I can't imagine, a house, I can't imagine an afterlife like that. You see, what, what happens is, our ideas of heaven, what we do is we think of the most enjoyable experiences we can come up with on this earth, we multiply them exponentially, and then we project them into heaven. And we think, if there's something good here, surely God will multiply it and include it there. Rather than see those good experiences as good gifts of grace, 
that draw our hearts and attention to a stronger and more beautiful reality than anything this world has to offer. See, the truth is that the joy and satisfaction that we will experience in Christ will so overwhelm us that we will lack nothing and look for nothing else. The idea that we will look around in a heavenly kingdom and long for what we don't have is preposterous. More preposterous than a kingdom without marriage. And it seems that, at least, the institution of marriage and all of its benefits finds its primary place here in this earthly world, which makes some sense to us who read our Bibles. Remember, Paul tells us, after all, in Ephesians, that the marriage covenant, which was ordained by God and instituted by God as a foundation of human society, is a picture of God's relationship with his church. You see, it points us to the great love that God has for us in Christ, whom he identifies as the bridegroom and the church as his bride. So once the bride, the church, is reunited with the groom, will there be a need to give any more illustration? We'll see it face to face. The reality will be with us. The shadow will not be needed anymore because the substance is right in front of us. But let's get to the big point here. As for the dead being raised, so he, he, he basically says, guys, you're thinking about this wrong. You're thinking about heaven like it's an upgraded version of earth. It's transformationally totally different. And it's going to be way better than anything you can even ponder and imagine. No eye has seen nor ear has heard. No mind has conceived the things that God has in store for those who love him. And that includes however he chooses to ordain and organize heaven. But he said, God, that's not really the point. That's not really your question. Your question's about the resurrection. Have you not read the book of Moses? Again, this is a, he's swinging. This is a punch, right? He, he says, have you not read the book of Moses? Yes, of course they have. They think the book of Moses is the only book of the Bible. Of course they've read it. They know it well. He says, have you not heard? Don't you know the story of the bush? He's talking about Moses and the burning bush where God draws him aside as he's tending the flocks and he sees the bush that is burning but not consumed. But you know what? Let's go there. Exodus chapter 3. I don't want to mess this part up. This is good. Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. 
Okay, this is like the foundational story of the Old Testament, right? That God sends a deliverer to liberate his people from oppression. The Jews know this story very, very well. The Sadducees are familiar with this story. And Jesus uses this familiar story to show the absurdity of their position. He says, when he speaks, does he not say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And what he means by that is this, that when God identifies himself, he does so in the present tense. And he identifies himself to Moses in connection to the patriarchs who had been dead for a long time at this point. Hundreds of years. But as he identifies himself, what is implied is that they, the patriarchs, are not simply expired, but they continue with him and are still connected with him in an ongoing way who continues and is ongoing. He says, what, you didn't see that there? He doesn't say, don't you know who I am? I'm the God that your ancestors served. Period. He doesn't say, I used to be the God of Abraham, and I was the God of Isaac, and one time I was the God of Jacob. He says, I am. I am. Remember what he tells him his name is? I am. Present tense. He says, he's not the God of the dead, he's the God of the living. And if he's the God of the living, how is it that the patriarchs are still living? They're still living because God raises the dead. You're wrong, he says. Without answering the question about the wife and all her husbands, he gives them the answer to the real question they were asking with an embarrassing rebuke for good measure. He says, you guys, you're so puffed up with pride, so intoxicated by your own position and importance, you've missed it entirely because you don't know your Bibles and you don't know the power of God. He says, you're quite wrong. Okay, so what? What does that have to do with us? How are we to understand and interpret what Jesus is teaching us through the Gospel of Mark today? The first thing I think we can see is that the futility of the religious leaders is on display yet again. They won't stop trying to trap Jesus, but they're not going to win either. It's a good reminder to us that out of all the things that are going on in Jesus' life, he remains in complete control of all of them. He is not a passive participant in the story. He is actively in control of the events. And it's unfolding precisely according to his father's plan. They're going to keep trying they're going to continue to lose. He continues to handle the confrontations well. Another thing, secondly, that comes to the forefront in this passage is the gap between expectations and reality when it comes to heaven. And like I mentioned, we tend to think of the best and most beautiful experiences on earth, multiply them exponentially, and then set our expectations for heaven accordingly. But when Jesus tells us today, what he tells us today is that the reality of heaven will likely be far different than the experiences we have here. The experiences we have here will prepare us in many ways. 
they'll, they'll create a longing in us in, in many ways. They'll give us a glimpse from time to time, a picture, a vision, an image of glory. But the real substance isn't quite here yet. And I don't, I don't know all the details of what that means. I'm not going to go on record and give you an outline of all the things that I know for certain are going to happen in, in heaven. That would be quite foolish of me. <laughs> Jesus would tell me I would be quite wrong in that sense. Um, I mean, but just ponder, ponder the Christian couple. Ponder a, a young Christian couple who the husband dies prematurely in an auto accident. The wife remarries another Christian man, builds a beautiful family. I mean, we, we, if that's really the, how this works, what in the world is that going to look like? We, we would do well to allow God to frame our expectations of what heaven looks like and allow pop culture to rest in its place somewhere down the line, right? What we need to hear today, what, what I, because that's a hard thing to, to, to grasp. I don't, know, I don't know what that means for the relationships in heaven. Ray Bolt sang a really good song about all the people that would come up to us and say thank you. I don't know if that's going to happen or not. I don't know how familiar we'll be with one another when we're there. I don't know what the relationships of the family will look like when we arrive there. I assume that that bond will stay intact, but that's, that's an assumption. I, I don't know for certain. But, but what you need to hear is this. You will experience nothing in heaven that disappoints you. You will experience nothing in the presence of Jesus Christ. You will find nothing there that leaves your soul longing for anything else. So complete and rich and full will be your joy in Jesus that whatever God has ordained, you will determine is the best and most glorious thing possible. So I can confidently say this. That whatever our good, good Father has for us in heaven is precisely the best thing for our souls to enjoy his presence forever. And if that means that we are united in partnership together and we recall all the fun stories that we had in this life and we remember the shared experiences here on earth, then praise God, I'm sure it'll be used for his glorious purposes. And if that means that we are instead so enraptured and enthralled by Jesus that we can't stop praising him for a moment to think about anything else, then we'll be okay with that too. But I do know this. We will not be disappointed in any way. The hope that we've placed in Christ will not disappoint us. That's what Paul tells us. Whatever the realities of heaven... We will not for one moment look past the glory of Christ and regret that our expectations weren't met. Thirdly, I feel like we're here again. Know your Bibles. 
The reason the Sadducees missed it is because they didn't know their Bible and they didn't know the power of God. Read your Bible. Study your Bible. Do it with a, a humble heart. Don't sit down seeking to disprove everything that's in there. Sit down and say, God, I'd like for you to speak to me and I'm yours today. Open your mind, open your heart, read, study, embrace what God has for you in the scriptures so that you'll know and discern and be able to make sense of all of it. Know your Bibles. Jesus says the problem with the religious crowd wasn't their religion necessarily. It was that they didn't know the scriptures, and subsequently failed to know the true power of God. If they had known the scriptures, they would have known and recognized Jesus. After all, Jesus tells them, the whole Bible, all of the scriptures are about me. They point to me, and they reveal me. So know your Bibles. That was a hard day, wasn't it? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and its power, and its teaching, even the hard teachings. God, I pray that you'd help our minds and our hearts be rested in your goodness and your joy. Lord, help us to process what we've learned today. Lord, it's hard for us to even imagine a reality without the the seemingly unsurpassable joys of marriage. But Lord, if that's what you have planned for us, then we realize it'll be best for us. So God, I pray that you would help us to frame our expectations through the scriptures. Pray that you would help us to steward the relationships we have here on this earth for your purposes. I pray that we would be husbands and wives who recognize the beauty of a Christian marriage that points to the bigger reality of the gospel and lay down our lives in order to proclaim that gospel through our love for one another and our families. Lord, I pray that you would help us to know our Bibles, that we would have a desire and a passion and a drive to open our minds and open our hearts and yield to you the truth and the wisdom of God. God, I pray that you'd teach us and that we'd be discerning and that we would know what to do, that we would know the times we live in and what to make of the mess we find ourselves in. God, continue to teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, at this point, if you're watching via live stream, this is where we have to say goodbye, unfortunately. So thank you for tuning in. As always, you can join us next week, 9 and 11, on campus or in your living room, as the case may be. We'll see you later. Those of you on campus, in the room, you can stand, and we'll continue to worship through song this morning.